Well, good morning, everyone. We are so glad that you're here today, that you've chosen to come and worship with us. We're thankful for each and every one of you. We're going to begin this morning by looking to the word to ready our hearts for praise and for worship through song. So let's look together at Psalm 145, verses 1 through 9, which says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his, gratefulness is uns- and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy, Lord, that is evident in our lives. Lord, we see that. We've seen that this week as you have guided us through uh, the events of this past week, Lord. And so we thank you for bringing us all here uh, together this morning to worship you. Lord, I thank you for this day that you have set aside for us to rest and honor you and worship. And so, God, Lord, now as we come to this time where we sing, God, I pray that our hearts would be turned toward you, that we would be uh, joined together in one spirit, Lord, to see you glorified above all things. Lord, so now as we sing, God, lift up, may we lift up our voices, Lord. Uh, help us to, uh, to praise and worship you, God, in spirit and in truth, Lord. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we begin our worship this morning by singing great things. worship our King. Come let us bow at His feet. He has done great things. See what our Savior has done. See how His love overcomes. He has done great things. He has done great Faithful through every storm, 
the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall Savior's love for me. For 
was in the garden. He prayed not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall end. sins and my sorrows he made them his very own he bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how marvelous how wonderful is my Savior's love for me when with the ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me I have set my king on Zion my holy hill my father's word and to my listening ear all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spring 
Good morning, everybody. It is my pleasure to be your greeter here this morning. I am particularly pleased to stand before such a beautiful and wonderful congregation, gathering, fellowship, um, feeling my freedoms this morning, just gone through a quarantine, and I'm free, set free. It is a nice feeling. Maybe that's why you guys look so good to me. You always look good. 
Uh, but really the freedom from that is nothing compared to the freedom that we're given in our Lord. Um, we have these small freedoms we can enjoy every day, but the freedom in Jesus is eternal and forever and something that needs to be shared with those we love, those we know, know that we, those that we run across. It's such a beautiful thing. Uh, and in particular, um, I, I, I know there's a lot of places struggling right now. Uh, I know the schools. I don't know about other businesses, but I know the high schools. They're really struggling keeping people in classrooms. Um, every day there's teachers out, and they're just scrambling to keep, you know, keep the doors open. And so just be in prayer. Uh, those places, they're, they're just having a hard time. But it is kind of nice to know that when things get tight, People get tighter, and, and people are there for each other. So, and, and, and being here, I know that whenever things get rough for me personally, my family, this group right here is such a huge blessing. Thank you for your love and your support and all that you guys have done and continue to do for one another. What a, a blessing it is to be a part of this gathering. But I'm here to greet you this morning. So greetings to you. Greetings to those folks online. Um, lots of folks maybe needing to stay home and watch. Uh, watch later. Thank you for, for joining us. Uh, make sure that if you are joining us online, that maybe you check in, call in the office, let them know so that we can know who's watching out there. So you, um, you have your attendance sheets there in, in, the, in the pews. If you'd fill those out, that is, that is helpful to us. Just go ahead and leave them uh, sitting on the, on the chairs there. They'll collect those later. So for announcements... We have a new members class, and it continues today, 11 a.m. in the church library. If you did not make it last week, you could still join the class. It is open to all who are interested in becoming members of EFC Oroville. Please see one of the elders for more information. And as a member of EFC Oroville, I highly recommend it. New classes are coming for January 30th for the Discipleship Hour. Please check the bulletin for more information and make plans to join a class. Speaking of classes, the pastor's class, A Journey Through the New Testament, continues today in the music room. Today, we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians, and all are welcome. Oroville Christian School is having dinner and a silent auction fundraiser on February the 4th at 6 p.m. to raise money for its historical sites tour in the spring. Tickets are available now from OCS students or in the school office. So please support the school and the HST and uh, join a great dinner and have a good time. You can contact the uh, OCS office for more details. The uh, Kingsmen are having their next meeting. We just had a great breakfast uh, last weekend. That was wonderful. Uh, but they're having a meeting on Tuesday, January 25th. Men, mark your calendars. January 25th, 6 p.m. in the foyer. It's open to all men in the church, age 16 and older. Men, join us for a fun time of food, faith, and fun. Uh, highly recommend it. I go to these things and always have a good time. Pastor Greg in the church office loved to send out cards for birthdays and anniversaries. I've received a few Thank you for those. It's so nice to get those in the mail. If you would like to be included in that, you uh, might want to update your information. Uh, make sure you check. Uh, there's a clipboard at the welcome desk. Make sure your information is updated and your birth date is on there. And so you can be blessed by pastor as well. And now then, our missionary of the month for January. January. 
Carol Johnson. There's some cards just like this. Carol Johnson, who serves with the EFCA Ministry to Children, Global Fingerprints. Please pick up a prayer card in the missionary corner today to remember to pray for her this month. If you want to designate a gift to Carol, just mark it for mom, missionary of the month, on the offering envelopes that uh, should be there in the, in the chairs. Uh, there's the uh, offering box. It's a beautiful silver box as you come in. It's available there. Today we're taking a special offering for the Hope Center and the Rescue Mission, two very important ministries for this town. If you want to designate your giving to these or any of our church ministries, please indicate that on the offering envelopes. Thank you for your faithful and generous giving to EFC. And this has been a very faithful and generous group. So that's our announcements. Lots going on. We're blessed. But let's go ahead and turn to our invocation passage. We'll be reading from Psalm 139. Verses 1 through 17, that's Psalm 139, a very appropriate passage for today, and a beautiful passage just in general. So if you would be so kind as to stand for the reading of God's word, would sure appreciate that. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, sh where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we praise you. We praise you. You are worthy to be praised. We praise you for your blessings over us and your mercy toward us. We're not worthy of your grace or your mercy. So we're ever so thankful for Jesus who brings us into a right relationship with you. May our lives reflect the gratitude we feel for a salvation that you have given us. 
And Lord, we, we confess our sins to you. We have not loved you as we should. We've not served others as we should. And we've held back from trusting you completely. May the blood of Jesus cleanse us and your grace empower us to live for you and your kingdom. And Lord, we want to lift up our missionary of the month, Carol Johnson and her ministry through Global Fingerprints. When orphan children learn of the grace and mercy offered in Jesus Christ as you meet their needs, may all of our missionaries represent you well in their service throughout the world. And Lord, we pray for those who will serve on our boards and committees this year. May the Spirit of God empower them to serve well for the good of the body. And may you, oh Lord, keep them from any ambition or any selfish gain. We pray that each of our ministries, men, women, children's missions, that they will seek to train people in becoming faithful disciples and reaching more people with the gospel. We pray for those in authority over us at the local, state, and national level. May they serve well with a spirit of humility. And may the wisdom of God's spirit endow them. May those who seek immoral policies be frustrated in their efforts. We pray for those who cannot be with us this morning because they are ill, hospitalized, or homebound. May the Lord touch them with his mercy and comfort and grace. May they feel connected to us through the online services. We pray for businesses and schools and uh, places struggling to meet the needs of, of what they're doing. Lord, we just pray that you would provide. Lord, we pray that you would bless the offering for this morning. Bless those who give and grant wisdom to our leaders as they steward these funds. May all of these resources of this church be used for your glory, Lord, and for the blessings of your people. And we lift up the sermon this morning. We pray that you would speak through Pastor Greg as he teaches us from your word. And may your bread of life, your word, be open to us. And may our hearts be open to your word. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. As we've already sung this morning in different songs and writing in the scriptures, we confess that God is the God of life. Indeed, it is the confession of the church that the Lord is the giver of life and that we affirm, therefore, as his people that all life is sacred from the moment of conception to the time of natural death. Unfortunately, this weekend, we need to recognize and remember a very ignominious day. 49 years ago when the United States Supreme Court created a miscarriage of justice and declared that the unborn were pieces of conception that we could throw away at will. We need to continue to give a prophetic voice of truth, of life, of affirmation that this must come to an end and be a truly pro-life people all throughout life. And so this morning, we're going to take a few moments to look at a video from a ministry called Live Action 
and we are going to hear about and see about the development of baby Olivia and see the gift of God that we have just read about in Psalm 139 and how God brings it about from the very moment of life to the time of birth, after which we will have a time of concentrated prayer for the Supreme Court of our land, for political leaders, and for the church that we would be used of God to bring an end to this travesty. She has already completed an amazing journey. This is the moment that life begins. A new human being has come into existence. At fertilization, her gender, ethnicity, hair color, eye color, and countless traits are already determined. She begins to implant in the uterus about one week after fertilization. Her cells organize into what we call an embryo. At three weeks and one day, just 22 days after fertilization, Olivia's heartbeat can be detected. The buds of her arms and legs appear by four weeks. She begins to move between five and six weeks with both spontaneous and reflexive movements. At six weeks from fertilization, her brain activity can be recorded and bone formation begins. She can bring her hands together at seven and a half weeks and separate fingers and toes emerge. She can also begin to hiccup. At the beginning of the ninth week, Olivia will have grown from a single cell into nearly one billion cells, and she is now called a fetus. She will suck her thumb and swallow, grasp an object, touch her face, sigh and stretch. At 11 weeks, she is playing in the womb, moving her body and exploring her environment. Her taste bud cells have matured by week 12, but are still scattered throughout her mouth. Her mother will first sense Olivia's movements between 14 and 18 weeks, an event called quickening. Beginning at 18 weeks, ultrasounds show speaking movements in her voice box. Around 20 weeks, with a lot of help, babies have survived outside the womb. At 27 weeks, her eyes are responding to light. She can recognize her parents' voices and will even recognize lullabies and stories. Olivia has gone on an amazing journey during these last nine months. She will soon signal to her mother that it is time for delivery and greet the outside world. Will you join me in prayer? Father, as we have read in your word this morning, and as we have just seen in this video, life is beautiful and precious. 
And indeed, we confess that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are intended and designed and planned by your divine will. And Father, it grieves our hearts that we have looked at this gift of life and under the fog and deception of sin and selfishness have 63 million times said this life is not worth it. And we repent. God, would you have mercy on our nation, though we do not deserve it. Father, would you have mercy on the church that has been far too silent for far too long and has run after comfort and convenience instead of procuring and securing the sanctity of life. But Father, this morning we join our voices with brothers and sisters across this land and we cry out and say, oh God, enough. And we pray even now as the Supreme Court considers yet another case that finally moral clarity and human dignity would pierce through the darkness and that this practice would come to an end. And we pray, Father, that you would gird us up and strengthen us to be part of the solution and the answer to difficult circumstances that women find themselves in, but that we would be life-affirming at every point along this long line of life from the moment of conception to the time of natural death. We pray for pro-life ministries like Caring for Women and Live Action and others locally and across the country that you would give them supernatural strength in this season to stand firm for the unborn and their mothers and to serve them well. Father, may you throw open the gates of heaven that the riches and resources needed to fund these ministries would be provided. And Father, would the clarion voice of your word go out from pulpits across this land to declare that life is precious and that we must be a people who stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. Father, we want to pray for those in authority, including the governor of this state, who desperately needs to fall on his knees before a holy God and repent of his sins. He has already made anti-life, anti-Christian declarations of what he will do. I pray, Father, that you would frustrate his efforts. I pray that he would find himself humiliated in his attempts to degrade human life. But, Father, we have also sung in our songs this morning that this is your world. And though the wrong seem oft so strong, God is the ruler yet, and we believe it. And we believe that justice will prevail. And we believe that your will shall be done. But, Father, would you gird us up now to be overcome and empowered by the grace of God to respond in mercy to those around us. Thank you that there is forgiveness available to those who have had an abortion, 
There is mercy and forgiveness available to those who have performed abortions. And I pray that the conviction of God, the Holy Spirit, would come upon those who are now still practicing abortion. And that across this land, we would see one after the other clinics close. And that we would truly become more and more a life-affirming people. Perhaps, Father, the struggle will still go on and it will be difficult. But may you cause us to want to be involved in the struggle because it is right and just. And so on this day, we pray and we plead on behalf of our nation that this practice would come to an end. And that great national repentance would spread across our land, leading to a great national awakening and a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may it be for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And at this time, our children can be dismissed to their classes. As we invite you to stand, as we continue in our worship, as we sing of the only hope that we have had and that this world has is in Christ alone.
Good morning again. It is good to be with you this morning in the house of God. And a special greeting to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being with us as we now take this time to sit under the authority of God's word. The Hall of Famer Roger Staubach was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. And he led his team to several Super Bowls and was a regular in the NFL Pro Bowl game. But in order for him to succeed, he had a tough lesson to learn in order to become the quarterback that he was. You see, his head coach, Tom Landry, was known as a tough disciplinarian. And he ran his team with an iron fist. And Coach Landry called all of his own plays. And each play he would call and give to a player who would go in and give it to the quarterback. He told Roger when to run the ball, when to pass the ball. And only in emergency situations could he call an audible and change the play. And then he knew he had better be right. And even though Roger would say that Coach Landry had a genius mind when it came to football strategy, his pride said that he should be allowed to run his own team. After all, he was a retired Navy man who knew how to lead others. But his military training also gave him the resource that allowed Staubach to deal with this this situation with Coach, Coach Landry. As he would summarize it, he said, I later faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. In the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see a great example of obedience under fire. Because ultimately, obedience... Is really what makes the difference in the Christian life. It's not enough to know things. Will we obey what God has clearly shown us? In our passage this morning, we see a godly man who was pressed to the limits of his faith with a challenge that was unique. And so whose honor would he seek? Would he seek his own honor or the honor of God? 
as I think we'll find there's a lesson for all of us today. Well, last week in our opening of the series in the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. And as Matthew was organizing the material that he had on the life and legacy of Jesus, he began by showing a very unique and crooked family tree of the one who would become the savior of mankind. And in this list of names, Matthew establishes the legal line of Jesus through the house of David, though he would be qualified to be the Messiah. And we saw that Matthew took great pains to show his first readers by the selection of the names he used, by the selection of the names he didn't use, that this Jesus born to Mary would be the Messiah, promised to come through the line of David. And we saw that something unique was happening at the end of the genealogy that prepares us for the next step in the story. Something unique about the conception and birth of Jesus. In all other cases in Genesis 1, We see something like, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. But when we got to Joseph, Matthew records, we have Joseph, the husband of Mary, of of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so that left a question hanging then at the end, how could this be? How will this come about? And so as Matthew is preparing to bring us to the next part of the story, he knows he needs to answer that very important question. And though you've already stood on several occasions this morning, I'm going to invite you one more time to stand as we read our text for this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And the beautiful and altogether truthful word of God says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he did not know, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, let us pray. Father, as we have read your text this morning, you have given it for a reason. May we be instructed thereby as you guide us this morning that we might see Jesus in a greater light as your spirit gives direction. And as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And hopefully with pen in hand, you have your outline ready and let's go ahead and look at our text together. Our first major point is a disturbing Discovery, a disturbing discovery. Now the text begins very straightforwardly. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now of course we are talking about a birth, but the real interest is in the conception of Jesus as the context will make place. In other words, that's where the accent is placed. 
how was this Jesus conceived? Because there was great attention shown to how all the others in the genealogy were conceived in the normal way of events. And we've seen that God has been guiding all of these things. He's been guiding those who would come generation after generation. But how would it be then that Jesus, the Messiah, would come into the world? Well, let's take a brief look at the relationship between Joseph and Mary. We are told straight away in the text that they are now betrothed. That's a strange term to us today. We don't use it. So what would the first readers have understood? Well, the entire process within the first century of Jewish life was that the bringing together of a man and woman in holy matrimony was a threefold process. First, the families themselves would reach an agreement of some sort concerning the son of one family and the daughter of another. The families themselves were greatly interested in seeing that the relationship would, would work and would uphold the honor and dignity of the families involved. It reflected more than just the, the two individuals, it reflected the families. It was seen as a societal event, as culturally important. Now that's a little strange and foreign to our ears today. We sing a lot about freedom and autonomy and the individual, but in most parts of the world, even today, such a thought is foreign. Arranged marriages are still practiced in many parts of the world, even among Christians. One of the dearest couples that Carol and I got to know in our time in Jordan was a couple from India whose marriage, in fact, had been arranged. They were happily married. They were a delight to be around. And as a side note, divorce is much lower in many of those countries than in our own. This first step would be called the engagement step. And it could happen as young as 12, year, 12 years of age for the girl, maybe a year or two older for the boy. The family would bring them together and say, Let, let's see how this relationship is going to work out. And as their commitment grew, and as the families saw a future in this relationship, they would move to the next stage, which was the betrothal. Now that could take some time. Because obviously they want to see, are these people going to be able to get along? Is this a good fit? But during the betrothal period, they were promised to each other. They were committed to each other in an exclusive relationship. And while they would not live together yet, this was a legal arrangement. They were now legally seen as husband and wife. And if we notice the language here, we see that Joseph is twice referred to as the husband of Mary. And the dissolution would be considered a divorce. Now, this betrothal period would last about a year. Each of the parties would remain with their respective families, but they would continue to grow in their relationship, and it was just expected that there would be fidelity and sexual purity during this period of time as the couple prepared to share a common home together. And there were benefits to this arrangement. They would get to know the different families that were involved. They would have a chance to promote and protect the beauty of God's plan for marriage. And it would keep them pure, leading to what is desired of God and desired of those who enter into marriage, and that is pure sexual fulfillment. Any act of infidelity during this time would be considered adultery, and the dissolution, would be con dissolution of the relationship would be considered divorce, and that's what we have here in this case. And then after a year of betrothal, there would be the big wedding celebration that would take place. And as part of the ritual of the wedding ceremony, 
the bride would go, uh, I'm sorry, the groom would go with his entourage to the house of the bride and would take her, and then they would go and have the celebration, and then the groom, of course, would bring the bride to his home, where now they would live in full covenant, one flesh relationship as God designed. And that is the meaning in verse 18, before they came together, before they were officially married, sharing the same home, sharing the same marriage bed, before they came together, a problem was discovered. Now, a, a word about God's way of doing things. You know, we live in a world of tremendous moral confusion today. It, it, just when I think that we can't hit, go, we can't go any deeper in the moral basement, there's another news cycle, and it seems to take a deeper plunge. But we need to affirm, in the midst of a disbelieving, unbelieving culture, the truth. And that is that God is the designer and definer of marriage. He is the one that has created men and women just as they are. But created them to be complementary with one another. He is the one that designed us as we are. That our bodies between men and women within marriage would correspond to each other. So that his plan for marriage could be entered into fully and joyfully. And he is no cosmic killjoy. Often we like to say, well, you know, those who are really getting the most action, they're not married. Those that are having the most fun, they're not married. It's a lie. The statistics and the studies show that God's ways work best. You want to be happy in marriage? You want to be happy, period, joyful with your sexual life? Get married. That's God's design. They bear it out that those that are faithfully committed in covenantal heterosexual marriage are the most fulfilled, the most satisfied, the most blessed. They're the happiest. That's the way God designed it. He's not a cosmic killjoy. He just said, channel it in the right way, and it'll be good for all involved. But in this story, there's a problem that has cropped up. The beauty of God's design is interrupted by a spiritual surprise, spiritual in quotation marks. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, as we look at the big picture of how the four Gospels tell the story, it is evident that the, the events of Luke 1 have already taken place. God has already appeared to Mary through the angel to say that she would be the mother who would give birth to the Son of God, that this would be a son who would have an eternal reign sitting on David's throne. And then we're told that at the end of that story in Luke 1, Mary goes off for three, week, uh, three months to be with Elizabeth. So the events of Luke 1 take place before the events of Matthew 1. And so we're not told at what point in the story Matthew discovers that Mary is pregnant. If we just pick it up chronologically, it could have been three or four months into the picture because perhaps they haven't seen each other during that time. We're not sure. But somehow he finds out that she is pregnant. After all, you can only hide such a thing for so long. But how humiliating this discovery would be for him. The reproach of the culture. The shame that he would receive from his family and friends would be great. 
Joseph, what kind of woman are you marrying? And to make matters worse, it's obvious that Joseph cares deeply about Mary. He loves Mary. Imagine the pain that he felt as he found out this about Mary. Imagine a hypothetical conversation that would take place between them from Joseph's point of view. There was an angel, and now you're, you're pregnant, and no man has touched you? It's, it's from God? He'll be the son of God? Mary, how much do you expect a man to believe? It's obvious he's disturbed about this. He's really struggling with what's going on. In his mind, she's committed adultery. But in Matthew's account, he affirms in summary form what the angel had told Mary in Luke 1. He says she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had provided the missing DNA that would make Jesus truly human, but not inheriting a sin nature. And that's an important thing to underscore about Jesus. And we'll see that all throughout Matthew, that he was truly human, but without a sin nature, without sin. So Matthew and Luke both affirm that it was the Holy Spirit of God who was involved in the virginal conception, the virginal birth of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit was involved in all of the lives of Jesus. All the events of Jesus' life. And that should not surprise us. The Holy Spirit was working in and through Jesus so that the plan of God would be empowered and would move forward. And the Holy Spirit continues his ministry today to proclaim the truth about Christ through the body of Christ, which is the church. And then we read between the lines, we see the, the beauty and the majesty of all three members of the Holy Trinity working together in perfect harmony so that the plan of God is accomplished. We see the Father and the Son and the Spirit all working together in perfect harmony. Now, the idea of a virgin birth has been ridiculed since the early days of the church. And it's still ridiculed today. But the Bible makes it clear that the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of all things. In the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the waters, over the unformed mass, and was used of God to bring about the formation of the heavens and the earth. And the Holy Spirit, in several places, is called the Lord, the giver of life. He is active in all aspects of creation. So if the Holy Spirit is involved in all aspects of creation, how hard is a virgin birth? The real question comes down to not whether a virgin birth could happen, but whether people will believe God, whether people will believe in miracles, whether people will believe beyond just the natural or the expected. With God, all things are possible. And yet, not all things are likely. And we face the fact that virgin births are not normal in the course of nature. But the manner in which God the Holy Spirit, writing through Luke and writing through Matthew, makes it clear how this conception came about, sets it apart from the pagan myths and religions that took place all around the time of the New Testament. You see, in, in pagan religions, it's often the case that gods and humans consort, and there's all kind of strange things that happen. That's not what this is. 
This was a miraculous event whereby God the Holy Spirit placed the necessary DNA in Mary's womb so that Jesus would have both a human lineage and would be of divine origin. The Messiah would come from the line of David, but not directly the flesh of David. That's why Matthew goes to great lengths to show the legal line through which Jesus came. And this Jesus would be the God-man. Truly God and truly man who alone can reconcile man with God. And all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, then we will see that Jesus is truly human with all that it entails. Jesus had human emotions. He had human thoughts. He had human needs. He even had issues with a very real human family. As a result, he's able to enter into each of our situations and our needs because he understands them. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say he can sympathize us with all of our weaknesses because he knows all of human experience except sin. Moreover, he's the one who can actually do something about it. And so whatever struggle we're facing, we have a redeemer that we can go to that we know sympathizes with us and he alone can do something about it. Next we see that conviction and compassion meet. Conviction and compassion meet. And her husband, notice the word, we've been told they've not yet come together, but and her husband, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He's called a just man, which in this case means that he follows the law of God. This is a, an, an outward action. By all outward actions, he is obeying the law of God experientially he's walking with God, he's walking with man, but he's in a tough spot. This woman, his betrothed, is pregnant, but not by him. So according to the law, a a divorce would be permitted. You see, Joseph was a righteous man, but he also wanted a righteous wife. And maybe one of the reasons why we have the stories of questionable women in the genealogy is to show that God is at work in all kind of broken situations and unusual situations and maybe provide some explanation about what's going on with Mary, knowing that there would be false accusations against her concerning her nature. Now, under the law, the death penalty was allowed for cases of adultery, and this was a case, seemingly, of adultery, at least in the mind of Joseph. Yet, the Romans of Jesus' day did not allow capital punishment except according to their terms and their laws. They did not follow Jewish law. So the Jews would not have been able to practice the death penalty in this case in the first century, but what they would have done was a divorce, which was very easy under Jewish law. It could be easily done as give a certificate of divorce with two or three witnesses, and it was done. They were divorced. And this could be done quietly in a corner somewhere with two or three witnesses. Or it could be done loudly so as to publicly humiliate the woman. The sad reality is that under the law that the woman could have been killed, caught in this situation, and while she could not have been put to death under Jewish law because the Romans would not allow it in the first century, she could be put to death in her reputation and social standing if, in fact, there was a vindictive man who publicly repudiated and humiliated her. So Joseph is in a dilemma. We are told that he is a just man. But his own reputation is on the line as well. 
How can a righteous man marry a woman who is carrying a child that is not his? But as a compassionate man, how can he willingly bring Mary to public shame? And so that's where we see where he had decided to do it quietly. Because he was just, but he was also merciful. He was law-abiding, but he would not pursue fully carrying out the law. He sought to balance conviction with compassion. He has compassion on Mary, though at least until now, because remember, he has not met the angel of the Lord yet. Until now, he considers her an adulteress. After all, virgin births don't happen. And so he is going to quietly put her away. We are told, quietly divorce her. But even if you try to do it quietly and mercifully, how could such a thing really be hidden? He could try to protect her as much as he could, but there would still be humiliation and shame. Now there's a certain tension that I think Matthew wants us to feel here because he has just explained in great detail how Jesus has come through the line of David. He is legally through the line of David, established in Joseph. And he's been arranging all things, including bringing Joseph and Mary together. But what if Joseph didn't follow through? And married Mary. What if? Because that's what he's contemplating. What would happen to the plan of God? Well, it's a nice hypothetical because we don't have to worry about it. But why is it at least important to consider? We'll see later in our text that he had to name Jesus as a sign of public adoption of Jesus as his son. And if he doesn't do that, then perhaps Jesus is not seen as coming through the line of David, though there's some question in Luke whether Mary, in fact, was from David as well. But this would not be the first time that there would be some tension in the text and a potential threat to God's plan. But God wins the day, and God will always win the day. So next we see a disruptive dream. A disruptive dream. While he's thinking it over, the text tells us how to do all this in an appropriate way. We see that an angel appears. He's anguishing over his decision, and his sleep is interrupted by a heavenly visitor. The text says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. To prevent any potential disruption to his plan, God sends an angel. And once again, we see that God is superintending at each point in the story so that his plan will go forward. And angels, at least in this part of human history, were an important part of how he did it. God wants to make sure that his message is heard. We're not sure who the angel is. It was the angel Gabriel who appeared to Zacharias and appeared to Mary, but here we're not given a name. We just know that he appeared to Joseph in his sleep. I find that interesting, at least to pose as a potential question, that here he appears to Joseph in his sleep, but he appears to Mary while she's awake. Was, was Joseph so overcome by the social pressure of going on that it was only in the sleep that God could actually get his attention? I don't know, but that's how God chose to do it. But what we can say for sure is look at what the angel said. Joseph, son of David. This is the only time this title is used for Joseph in all of the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, this is the only time that the title son of David is used for someone other than Jesus. 
in the Gospel of Matthew. God is very intentionally designing, directing, guiding things down to the very words to be sure that we know it is him that is doing it. So what does the angel say? We're just going to summarize. We'll read some of it, but we'll summarize. The, the, whole, the angel appears and says, Joseph, this is, all, this is all from God. The baby that Mary is carrying comes from the Holy Spirit. You will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. So take Mary as your wife and do not be afraid. And I think the fear here is not so much the fear of the angel that has appeared to him, but do not be afraid of the social shame that would come about this situation. Don't worry about what society may think, Joseph. This is what God thinks. Act accordingly. But this is a challenging situation for Joseph. He's a just man. His reputation is at stake. And God intervenes to make it clear what he is to do. And Joseph shows us an example of faith. He placed his trust in God. All of us are faced with challenges in life, some of them that seem really ridiculous. How did I ever get in this situation? What is God asking me to do? But you need to ask yourself the first question, does God make mistakes? And when we answer that correctly, no. Does God know what he is doing? And we answer that correctly, yes. Then we submit to him and say, yes, Lord. I will do as you have commanded. I will obey. Now, I say it again for emphasis, but we know we are dealing with a unique event here. Christians are not superstitious and that we think that virgin births happen all the time and we just don't know how. This is a unique event. It's, there's really nothing like it in the rest of Scripture or really in the rest of human history properly understood. Virgin births, virgin conceptions are the exception, not the rule. This is a miracle. This is a divine intervention of God. It is a miracle, not a normal cult. Okay? It's not something that God does all the time. And the reaction of both Mary and Joseph to this situation show that they understood. They knew how the process worked. And this was different than the normal process. Thus, there is some degree of what? And the Lord has to give assurance and confirmation that this is what's going to happen. So an angel appears, and then we have the promise of a son, a savior. The text goes on as the angel speaks. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now there's a lot in this one verse. We could camp out for a while here, but We'll just point out a couple of things. One, this is a fulfillment that was given through Isaiah the prophet in the 8th century B.C. A prophecy that was given in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that God would give a son who would rule over his people over an eternal kingdom. And the, the text of Matthew are preparing us for the sign of adoption. You see, in that period of time, you could take a child that was from another family and raise it on your own. You had to publicly name the child as a public testimony that this is my child that I will raise as my own. And notice the command of the angel. You shall call his name Jesus. Moreover, the name of this child is wonderful, as I've underlined already in the text, that his name is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. 
And that would have been the hope for which the people longed. Even one of their psalms cries out, O Lord, hope, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This would have been the longing that the people of God had to be forgiven of their sins, to know God, to know him as Savior. And now we have the promise that the one born to Mary will be the Savior. His primary mission will be on the focus of the forgiveness of sins, which is the greatest need that we have as sinners before a holy God. As we talk about what the gospel is today with the larger culture, the gospel is hell-bound sinners being saved by a loving God who showed mercy on them they did not deserve and gave them eternal life. That is the gospel. As the hymn writer J.C. McCauley captures what's going on in the scene well, he says this. Far from being the fruit of sin, Jesus was to be the great deliverer from sin. The culture would have not understood what was happening with Mary. But God the Holy Spirit gives the interpretation. As the old saying goes, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew will show how Jesus went about bring the redemption of those the Father had given to him and that he will bring them into his fold, even his church, and how they will be redeemed forever. And in doing so, then, there is a promise kept. All this took place, the text says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in these first few chapters of Matthew, we're going to see this phrase or something similar to it again and again. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And Matthew is going to show us how Jesus has been the fulfillment of these different promises and types and models and shadows of the Old Testament. But how in this case is Jesus the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7? In what way did he fulfill this promise? Well, in part, we look at the context of Isaiah chapter 7, where God is speaking to a rebellious king named Ahaz. Ahaz does not know the Lord, does not want to follow the Lord, and does not want to listen to the Lord, but he knows that his people Israel are under threat from the surrounding nations. And so he's trying to cook up his own machinations for deliverance for the nation. And God is trying to speak to him through the prophet Isaiah. And Ahaz does not want to listen. And so God rebukes Ahaz and even says, ask me a sign, ask of me, I will give you a sign. But Ahaz will not because he doesn't want to serve the Lord. And so God says, okay, I will give you a sign and gives the words that we see in Isaiah 7:14 that his child shall be born, will be confirmation that I'm involved. And Ahaz would not see that his plans succeed, but he would see that it was God's plans that would succeed. And then Isaiah 8, uh, there is a child that is born, 
as a sign that God will keep his word, that there's a salvation of sorts. And so here in Matthew 1, what do we see? We see the promise of salvation. We see the promise of a son. And so from Isaiah 7 to Matthew 1, we have a type leading to the anti-type. We have a model leading to the true McCoy. We have a historical example leading to the ultimate fulfillment. What was promised in Isaiah 7 was fulfilled in a greater and perfect way in Jesus. There may have been a son born by the name of Emmanuel in the 8th century B.C. as a sign of God's promise, but the greater fulfillment came in the 1st century as Jesus was born to Mary, Mary who was truly a virgin. And as we look at the fuller context of Isaiah chapter 6 to 9, there is a promise that you're going to be punished, you're going to go off into exile, but I will bring you back, and moreover, I will send a redeemer, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and his kingdom will never end. Jesus fulfills the ultimate, ultimately the promises that was given. He is one who delivers his people from the exile of sin. He is the one who brings in the ultimate kingdom of God that will never end. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of which Israel longed for, coming from Israel and yet being the redeemer of Israel. And so this is not the only time that we will see Matthew take a historical event in the life of Israel and show how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that event, the promise that was involved in that event. And then notice the name. Immanuel. We take it directly from the Hebrew. He with us is God. Now, as far as we know, Jesus was never actually called that name in the Gospels. He's referred to as Jesus or the Christ or the Lord Jesus or other things like that. But he certainly was what this name indicates. He was and is God with his people. And Matthew will refer to this a couple of other times. Three times, in fact, he makes it clear Jesus pronouncing or being pronounced that Jesus is God with us. The first time is here in Matthew 1. The second time is in Matthew 18 in the context of church discipline. And the third time is in Matthew 28, when he says, I will be with you always. And how fitting then that the gospel that begins with God with us ends with the promise, I will be with you always, as he sends us out to accomplish his will. Third major point that we see this morning is a determined obedience, a determined obedience. When Joseph woke from sleep, the text says, he did as the Lord, as the angel of the Lord commanded him. What a dream. Going to bed, anguish, disturbed, what do I do? An angel appears. What a dream. I wonder what was going through his mind. I think Michael Card in his song, Joseph's song, at least gives us some insight into what may have been happening. Writing from the viewpoint of Joseph, the song goes, How could it be this baby in my arms, sleeping now so peacefully? The Son of God, the angel said, How could it be? Lord, I know he's not my own, not of my flesh, not of my bone. Still, Father, let this baby be the son of my love. Father, show me where I fit into this plan of yours. How can a man be father to the Son of God? Lord, for all my life, I've been a simple carpenter. How can I raise a king? How can I raise a king? 
He looks so small, his face and hands so fair, but when he cries, the sun just seems to disappear. But when he laughs, it shines again. How can it be? Joseph was going through very real human struggles with very real human emotions, and it took a divine intervention of God to calm his heart, to, to firm up his resolve to do what the Lord had commanded him. And we see that his obedience, I believe, was as striking and as noble as that of Mary in Luke chapters 1 and 2. That both of these partners in this story go through difficult anguish, but surrender to the will of God. Well, what does Joseph do in his determined obedience to listen to the angel of the Lord? The first thing is he takes a wife. Seems like such a simple phrase, but it means he brought her into his home. This was now the public declaration to all who would be watching that they were now not just betrothed, but that they were officially married, living as man and wife under the same home. And so Jesus would not be born out of wedlock, nor would he be born to a single mother, as sometimes we hear in popular social economics today. They were recognized at this point as husband and wife with Jesus providing for and protecting Mary as his legal and covenant wife. And he obeys. But there was one thing lacking. We're told he does not touch her at this time. They would not live as normal men and women live together in the context of holy matrimony. Now this was a common practice at that time for Jewish men to abstain from touching their wives while their wives were pregnant. And it was important in this case that Joseph not touch her because there was a prophecy to be fulfilled. There was a plan of God to be implemented. And I think we need to say that there must have been an amazing amount of self-restraint in the part of Joseph. I mean, we are created as men and women with a desire to be in a one flesh relationship with our covenant partner. It is a holy and dignified thing. But in this case, both Mary and Joseph would surrender to the will of God and would abstain during the pregnancy that Mary had. But after taking a wife, we see that he also he names a son. And I'm jumping to the end of the text where he says, and he called his name Jesus. And now he makes another public declaration. He's already publicly declared, this is my wife. I will take care of her. I will protect her. She will be under my house. And now by giving Jesus his name, he is publicly saying, this is my son. I will raise him as my own. He is part of my family. If you remember, if you look at the text, the Holy, uh, I'm sorry, the angel gave the name to Joseph in private. Now Joseph declares the name publicly. He obeys what he is called to do. That this child will be his and will have legal standing in the family. And lastly, to a confused culture, we need to affirm that let normal life resume. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. This couple would not remain in this unnatural relationship of celibacy forever. In the mind of God, in the holy mind of God, who is the creator of all and the creator of men and women, marriage, sex, and procreation are an unbreakable peace. 
And where we get into trouble as people and as a culture is when we start separating them out. And I think we would all agree that Western civilization has not been well served by the sexual revolution. God's ways are still best. And this couple would enter into a normal covenant relationship of oneness that certainly includes more than physical oneness but does not include less. They would be a normal married couple as the word until indicates there is an end limit to it. And as we'll see later in the book of Matthew, the mention of the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the other children of Mary and Joseph. And so, yes, we recognize that there was a virgin birth. And that points to Jesus, who was born of a virgin. But it does not point to a so-called perpetual virginity of Mary. Whatever God is doing, the focus is always to be on Christ. It is always to be on what God is doing through the servants. For Christ. Never on any of the servants. The idea of Mary's perpetual virginity came later in church history and is a betrayal of philosophical ideas, not the inspired word of God. The Bible does not know of a perpetually virgin marriage, and this would be no exception. When we look at the end of this passage, as we go through it, think of how wonderful the gospel is. Mary was not guilty of sin, though she was accused and would be accused. That would have been a difficult case to make with those around her. But children are not born to virgins. But Joseph, under God's guidance, willingly risks his reputation to take care of a woman whose own reputation was under threat. We think about it, that's what God did for us. Perhaps Joseph has learned a little bit from the character of the Lord. Perhaps he's learned from the example of Hosea the prophet who took a wayward wife to be his wife, a wayward woman. But Joseph is showing us in shadow form the mercy and character of God. Joseph adopted Jesus, who was not his son by nature, but was his son by choice, by adoption, with all legal rights and privileges. The Lord Jesus came to be the Savior of all who believe, of all whom the Father gives him to save. And in that salvation, all who are in Christ are adopted as the sons of God. We who are in Christ are not the children of God by nature. We become the children of God through adoption. And in the condescension of God, he comes in the form of Jesus Christ to be adopted into a human family. That he might pave the way for our adoption into God's family forever. And while we were still dirty in our sin and soiled in our reputation, Christ died for us. He took us in. He made us his clean bride. He bore our scandalous reputation, our sinful ways, took them to the cross, paid the penalty for them. What Joseph does in shadow form here for Mary, Christ did for us in full. We've been adopted by the mercy of God with all the privileges of being now in the family of God. So how do we leave from this place? Well, strengthened by the power of God, 
and acting upon the word of God and showing that we believe the promises of God, may we allow the spirit of God to empower us to act with conviction, but equally with compassion by those who are around us. That we'd be strengthened to recognize that even in the difficult circumstances, it is better to fear God and obey him in his word than to fear man and to lose out on his blessings. And so what are some lessons that we can learn from this passage today? The first is that the path to obedience is found, the path to blessing is found in obedience. We see examples of great obedience on the part of Mary, on the part of Joseph, on the part of many And there was great blessing as a result. We say that God may interrupt our plans, but will always be for his glory. We may think that we have a decision to make and we wrestle with it and we're going to make a decision. But God will guide us by his word so that it will be for his glory. We see that conviction and compassion ultimately meet in Christ at the cross, on our behalf, and then he sends us out to display that to others, that same balance of conviction and compassion. As we stand at the beginning of the gospel, according to Matthew, we are reminded that the greatest deliverance that God brings is forgiveness of our sins. And that's the greatest need that all those that are around us have. They too need to be forgiven of their sins. And as a side note, but certainly not in contradiction to what we see in this passage. We are to teach and uphold and live out God's beautiful plan for marriage. Our society depends on it. So we need to live out God's plan with great obedience and great joy that God may be praised. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the clarion call of the word goes out. And we thank you that it, at one level or another, makes us all feel uncomfortable. But we thank you that that clarion voice also brings us to a cross where there is great grace, where there is great mercy. And so we say thank you. Thank you for this example that you have shown us. Thank you for how you have worked in and through it. And Father, we know that we are a needy people who need to live these things out, but only in your power and for your glory on your terms. So would you find us faithful, Father, as you empower us to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and as we close out our service, sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.
Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners, hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace on all to be in prayer this week as we think about the, the pro-life issue and the demonstrations that will be in the Capitol next week. Continuing to pray that we'll be a life-affirming church all throughout life to the glory of God. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us go in peace and have a wonderful Lord's Day.